0: Hello and welcome to another road edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, uh, someone who helped invent it from the band Blondie, the legendary Clem Burke, a.k.a. Elvis Ramon, producer of many power pop classics, including the speedies and the colors and, and just a legend. There's no other way to put it. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, hit up the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. He also does a Facebook page and an Instagram page for this podcast as well. Both are turned out a punk. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for to support the show. Tell your friends about it. Uh, You can also uh, uh, hit up turnedoutapunk.com and grab a t-shirt. Thank you to everyone who has done that. I've seen a lot of people wearing them so far on this tour that we've been on, and and it it fills my bucket to see you wearing those shirts. Thank you. Uh, You can also support the podcast by subscribing to it and rating it and uh, letting all your, uh, you know, as I said, letting everyone know that you know that we do this podcast, that they might enjoy. I play in a band. Uh, As you can tell from the audio, I'm on tour right now. I'm doing this in a... Hotel room in Denver, Colorado. Uh, we are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc. And uh, yeah, come come to some shows. If you hear this, we've got I think two more shows left on this run, and then another one, and then you know who, who knows who knows what happens after that. Uh, and that's it. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show. Clem Burke is here. And it's funny because Clem plays in an incredible band, like a power pop super group called Split Squad with, with legends, a, l- a bunch of legends, including my friend and former guest of the show and, and future guest again on this show, more, more hopefully soon, Josh Cantor. And uh, Josh and I caught up in Boston when I was on tour there not too long ago. And he was t- talking about being on tour with this band. I was just punishing him for uh, stories that he had heard or or just what it was like being on tour with these people and I was just kind of lamenting the fact that that I really wished Clem Burke would come on the show fast forward a few weeks and here's Clem Burke on the show and uh yeah it's a big thrill Blondie has this brand new box set that has just come out an incredible box set um it's, it's truly, like, overwhelming to look at this thing. It's called Against the Odds, 1974 to 1982. It's got, like, tons of records, like two books, seven inches. There's, like, 36 or something unreleased Blondie tracks on that. We talked a little bit about this in the interview. But anyway, I, I, got, I got to get my hands on a copy of this thing because it looks ridiculous. But I have not yet seen one in person, so I'm just going by these online photos. But if you're a Blondie fan, you need this thing. Holy! You definitely need this thing in your house. This looks ridiculous. Uh, it is on Numero Group, uh, Numero Group. Sorry, I never get that right. And it, it is also on UMC, and you can find it now in stores everywhere. And so, yeah, Clem came here to talk Blondie, and I, I also got him to talk a bunch of other stuff. I'm not going to ramble on anymore because you're going to hear it in two seconds. Uh, but that's it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Clem Burke on Turned Out. Up. clem thank you so much for coming on the show
1: thanks a lot damien appreciate being here
0: well as i was just saying off air our, i was recently wishing this would happen to our mutual friend josh Cantor, um and now here it is happening so wish upon a josh and your dreams come true so thank you for being here
1: right and hello to josh brilliant keyboard player He's in uh, a band with me called the Split Squad. Uh, we just recorded a, just put out our second album, called Another Cinderella. And uh, Josh and I were just in France not too long ago, traveling around in a van and doing a bunch of shows. We did a really cool festival in Bordeaux uh, with the uh, Schizophonics. Do you know okay, those yeah. guys? Yeah, yeah, they were great, really great. I think they're from San Diego. Really cool band and it was out in an open field in the in the city in Bordeaux. It was an amazing time.
0: Well, and also Kurt from the Fastbacks was playing with you on that tour, right?
1: That's right, yeah. Kurt was with us as well, which was great. It was great to play with him and a uh, legendary guitarist from the Seattle scene and a uh, really cool guy. So yeah, it was an interesting uh, group of guys driving around in a van around uh, France for I think two weeks or so. It's really fun.
0: Josh and I were talking about it and it, it really is like a power pop supergroup when you have you know plimsolls and, and yourself and and fastbacks and you've got like a, a real who's Keith who from
1: the Keith from the flesh tones he flesh tones too Tons. absolutely yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. it's 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 a real like uh I don't know it's such a cool band because it does bring all these sort of like sort of connected but disparate kind of power pop scenes that were springing up independently right. all over America together
1: Right. And I think with the flesh tones, I think I played on their very first recordings back in the day um, that led to their uh, record deal with IRS and all that. So we've been friends for a long time. Flesh sounds a great fan. And also, didn't you play with the souls on, on a session? I did. I, did. I played with the Souls. We did an album called Cool Trash that came out uh, quite a few years ago now. Yeah, right. I did play with them and uh, I kind of had this recurring theme that I'm the become the uh, anti spinal tap drummer, you know, I kind of fill in yes. for the drummers that are not around any longer or not in the band any longer, let's say but um, yeah, I did play with the Plimsolls in a really great band, you know, that song million miles away is kind of like a, a new wave classic. Absolutely.
0: Well, we're going to talk about all uh, hopefully a lot of that stuff. But I got to start off the way they all start off here, which is Clem, right. how'd you get in a punk Do you remember the first time you ever came across the term?
1: Well, I think probably with Iggy you know, with the Stooges. I mean, there was a group of friends uh, when we were kids that all liked the Stooges. And I think uh, they were referred to as punk at the time. And um, of course, um, along with sort of kind of garage rock to me was kind of punk rock, you know, like bands like the music machine and, uh, you know, just on and on. I think the term was around in the 60s. I mean, I, I, I think that's when I first became familiar with it. And as related to music. And uh, I would say the Stooges were probably the first punk band that I, uh, you know, really liked a lot. Because you were uh, heavily
0: into music from a very young age, right? Like you had that one band that covered Zappa and uh, Captain Beefheart back to back at a school assembly.
1: Right, right. Yeah, we did do that. And the the music teacher pulled the plug on us. (laughs) Before you got to Beefheart? Or was it during the Zappa? We were doing that song, Willie the Pimp. I think it's a Beefheart song. Yeah, it is yeah and uh yeah that was pretty funny at you know 10 o'clock in the morning uh school assembly but uh yeah
0: well, and obviously that stuff had a fan base but it wasn't necessarily mainstream music so where were you kind of hearing about music at that age
1: well um the people that i played with at that school assembly were all in very much into uh frank zappa and uh, i think that album freak out we were all into as kids you know we just Kind of look for the more sort of out there stuff you know we're listening to the stooges listen to the mothers of the invention uh yeah i don't know it just um uh, you know uh, the inception of uh my uh interest in music was very early on so yeah what
0: was what was the root of the inception of loving it
1: top 40 radio in this in the states you know mm-hmm. the playing you know at the time things like the Raiders or the music machine or uh the Stones. So to me, the Stones were kind of the punk band, really. You know. Nah,
0: yeah. I'm nah, really definitely think they, yeah. Well, it's interesting to kind of look at them as being sort of the genesis of that sort of American garage rock stuff you're talking about, and how it sure. is like that is ultimately, yeah, the genesis of of American punk rock.
1: Right, right. I mean, the seeds, you know, pushing too hard. To me, that's like a punk rock song. Mm-hmm. You know, Sky Saxon I I co-produced a record for Sky, uh That was called King of Garage Rock. That came out on uh, Cleopatra Records a few years back. It was very interesting to work with Sky. You just don't want to let him know where you live, basically. (laughs) Well, yeah, peace. Rest in
0: peace. Absolutely, because he is—he is one of those from all the people that have come on this show that have had engagements with them like one of those true eccentrics that absolutely you know, are kind of the root of punk rock in a lot of ways yeah yeah
1: and question mark in the Mysterians 96 years you know they kind of sound like the band suicide you know in some ways you know? yeah
0: yeah absolutely yeah there's things it's like, like
1: that you know and
0: how unhinged a lot of that stuff was like vocally people screaming right. and kind of like yeah, going for sure. different places yeah what was total environment like was that the band that covered Zappa
1: and B no we were basically covering the top 40. okay yeah top 40 you know that of the day in the sort of uh around 1968 or so yeah but we were really popular in our in my hometown and uh it was all these uh you know battle of the bands type things that we would play at and sometimes win and. That, all that, that They're the band that first band I was in recording studio with. We we recorded at uh, A WABC uh, studios uh, in New York uh for uh cousin Bruce's Big Break, it was called at the time. Uh, the DJ Bruce Morrow, you know, would have um uh solicit uh local bands ascending a recording of of themselves and then uh they would if they liked that they would put you in the studio and then they would broadcast the track that you did in the on the air and then people would vote all that that kind of thing
0: that's so awesome that yeah yeah so did you did you gig with that band a lot like were you playing like oh, dances
1: yeah. type things yeah dances, CYOs, you know um <clears throat> jewish community centers <clears throat> excuse me um yeah the typical thing that most of my friends were doing at the time i mean if you look you know, investigate what Bruce and Steve and Vincent were doing back in the day, that's the kind of thing they were doing. And most weekends, we would play, and you know, earn a bit of money. And it just kind of one thing led to another from there, you know, it was always always in a band from the time I was a teenager.
0: You know, So by the time you move to or start going to New York more to to play shows, you're already doing Sweet Revenge by that point.
1: Yeah, well, before that, we would go into the into Manhattan sort of film more you know, the C bands quite a bit to the more east. And then uh, when I had the band Sweet Revenge later on was kind of like a glitter glam rock band and we would play at a place called Club 82 a lot. and uh, that's where I first kind of uh, saw uh, Wayne County, and people like that. And uh, a lot of people would hang out there that kind of eventually wound up at CBGB, people like Lenny Kaye or Tommy Ramone, Joey Ramone, New York Dolls would play the New York Dolls really. So that's the beginning of the whole New York scene for me, of course, the Velvet Underground prior, but the dolls are a band I would go and see and that everyone on the scene admired the dolls, you know. Yeah, they really do seem like, you know, like that famous thing about the Velvet Underground, everyone that bought that
0: record went out and started a band, but it seems like right. with the New York dolls, everyone that saw them was inspired to kind of do
1: it. Sure. I mean, they were larger than life figures to me. They were like superheroes, the New York Dolls. And you know they were um, on the scene playing. You know I saw them at Max's, I saw them at Club 82, I saw them at concert venues around the city. Uh, famously, I saw them open for uh, Mattha Hoople at uh, what was called the Felt Forum at the time. And uh, yeah, the Dolls were the the ultimate uh, role models for everyone on the whole New York scene. Really, you know, I mean the the songs, they're really great songwriters. Of course, Johnny Thunders, David Johansson the drummer Jerry Nolan's a big influence on me as well yeah they're certainly
0: one of those bands that you know those records sound timeless like there's still they're they're still fresh
1: yeah it's just so funny when people would you know kind of say they couldn't play and things like that it's ridiculous you know well I think that's like the
0: big uh the big lie with punk is that these people that were coming into it were amateurs that had never played before and it's like you know everyone had been in bands prior Like, from my understanding, I'd say most most
1: people, most people were for instance, um, when we began Blondie, uh, famously, my first gig with uh, Chris and Debbie at CBGB was with our bass player, Fred Smith, who was uh, left that night and announced he was leaving to join the band television. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of like when uh, things began to fall apart quite quickly for me with, with my partners. And then I brought in my high school buddy, Gary Valentine, who wasn't really a musician. And uh, he knew a few chords, but he had never been in a band. He was more like a poet. He's gone on to become a quite acclaimed writer in in the UK, uh, writing books mostly about the occult. And I I always run into all these people who uh, always bring up Gary uh, as his uh, writing, uh, for his writing and all. um, He goes under Gary Latchman, which is his original name, but he writes books about like Crowley and the occult you know, in popular culture and things like that. And uh, I know like Kurt, Han- Kurt Hannett and Johnny Marr, a lot of people always reference Gary's books to me when I, when I see them. So, um, but he wasn't a musician really. He was like I said, a writer, a poet. So I think he rec- recited some poetry uh, for his kind of audition uh, in front with the three of us and uh, he went on to play with me which we'd probably get to at some point with with iggy you know we did a tour and gary was one of the people involved at that
0: yeah yeah and also one of the great power pop songs of all time i like girls that he did with the right note. yeah
1: that's right he had the band the no he he decided he wanted to make his own way uh And so he decided to leave Blondie much, much too early. And his kind of swan song was that song, I'm always touched by your presence there, which we recorded on our second album, Plastic Mm. Letters. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm in touch with Gary to this day, you know.
0: That's amazing, too, like uh, all the different places people wind up because here he is having this whole incredible act with Blondie, obviously, and then his, his power pop stuff as Gary Valentine and then in the know. But then here he is having this whole other act where he's even probably arguably Absolutely. more famous for. <laughs> yeah,
1: he, I, arguably he is much more famous. I'm not particularly uh, have that much interest in the occult, but I know he's as far as uh, people that are into such things, he's, he's considered to be quite an authority nowadays. Yeah, it's amazing.
0: Who were some of the other bands that you would have been playing with with, with Sweet Revenge? Like, was Milk and Cookies kind of part of the scene, or any of the pre-Ramones bands, or? <laughs>
1: Well, uh, that band, the Neon Boys, that uh, Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine had uh, played at Club 82. Um, There was a band called Another Pretty Face that was uh, kind of almost a Bowie tribute band that was quite popular. They would mix originals with uh, covers like T-Rex. and I mean, the whole glam rock, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust kind of really, really informed, you know, the beginnings of punk rock for sure. I think everyone <clears throat> that got involved in the music scene was influenced, as they said, the New York Dolls, like David Bowie, Mark Ball, and I know Sylvain Sylvain was a big T-Rex fan, for instance. Um, some of the other bands, like I said, Teenage Lust. There was a band called Harlots of 42nd Street. Uh, and Debbie and Chris had a band called The Stilettos. Those were kind of our the other bands that were on the scene at the time. Yeah.
0: It, it feels like there's almost, this the sense of like waiting for punk to happen for a lot of the people that were there to right. really well, get it going
1: right there was a band sniper too that joey ramon was in as jeff stardust yeah 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 um, they were on that they played on that on that that circuit at the time and there was the place coventry uh, in queens another club that people would play but uh, where kiss would play for instance um <clears throat> yeah i think um people were waiting for something to happen. It's almost like the whole scene at Club 82 kind of morphed into the whole scene at CBGB with, with most of the people that hung around there kind of made their way around virtually around the corner to, to the Bowery to uh, CBGB. Did you ever catch the
0: band the dogs from Detroit that moved to New York for a short period yeah, of time? I think
1: I did. I think I did. Yeah, at one time. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I might have seen them somewhere along the way. They're like the a weird familiar.
0: Yeah, and they're they're like they. I guess they played with Kiss at the show. Kiss got signed at, and they would play very early on, just before punk kind of happened. They always seem like to be to the wrong place at the right time, or the right place at the wrong time. Right. Yeah. And, and so, it's
1: no, interesting with CBGB that whole scene? I mean, many, many, many bands played there, but really, the bands that had any kind of real success, so I probably could count on well on two hands, really. I mean you had living color come out later on out of cbgb amazing band but the early bands you know patty smith television ramones talking heads blondie it was mick deville yeah well
0: it's fascinating because you know like you said there's so many bands out of that scene but there's so few that make it beyond a couple seven inches you know and the bands that do are obviously some of the most important bands in the history of rock and roll but it's just it's amazing how many bands didn't get there. Like it it's and it's interesting reading just, you know, even from your own accounts, like how maligned Blondie was in the beginning and how it's kind of through this fighted doggedness that you kind of persevere. And that's why I think I think Craig Leon says it even in the in the book Paralleled Lives, but Blondie is kind of the first punk band because You were the band that did it in spite of everyone around you discouraging it and ultimately carved this incredible path that changes music forever.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, or Craig, thank you for saying that. But um, we had a really broad musical palette early on, and a lot of those attempts were not fully executed. You know, for instance, I mean, Heart of Glass with the Backlash that occurred we thought we were experimenting with electronic music at the time but um you know that song was around since the mid 70s on the uh, first demo we did with a guy called alan bettrock who was the editor of new york rocker i think he's kind of started the the newspaper at the time and uh, you know the songs on that demo which are included on this uh, against Yod's box that we have coming out um never really saw the light of day other than being officially recorded other than the, the art of glass version of Art of Glass. And it's uh, funny enough, there was this song called Platinum Blonde, which is kind of like a in the vein of the New York Dolls or the Rolling Stones. It was kind of Debbie's calling card at the time. And uh, we've never really officially recorded that on any other Blondie record up to this time, which is kind of funny because it was kind of a trademark song. Initially, when we were first playing in the bars around New York, It's funny, it
0: inspired actually a, a Canadian band from around where I'm from to they gave them their name platinum oh. one. Oh, like, really? It was on that bootleg, right? I think the guy Alan bootlegged it early on. Uh, uh,
1: Alan Bedrock I think he put it out. Yeah, but now it's on the it's included officially in this against the odds box. But oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, that's a little demo we did in a recording studio in a basement in Queens in the, in the mid 70s. Yeah.
0: Well, it's amazing like, how it's just like a little demo. But it's like these songs that would change the world. You know, it's like the, the, the ripples off this like one recording session
1: right oh we also did uh we were all big fans of the shangri las and uh, we did a version of their song out in the street on that demo which uh wound up uh being uh done with our record with craig uh no exit we included that version of that song on that album back when we got back together but um yeah i mean we as i said we attempted many things Uh, Some were not fully executed until much later on. And uh, so we had like this really broad musical palette and the various influences of the band were all over the place as well with, with, you know, soundtracks, things like Nina Rota, Fellini movies, or like bubblegum bands like the 1910 Fruit Gum Company and the influences of the Velvet Underground and the Stooges and that kind of so-called punk rock aesthetic, you know, and that was all kind of in them kind of melting pot of the sound of Blondie, I think.
0: Well, I think that's such a calling card of punk rock, too, is that sort of like, postmodern aesthetic, where you internalize all these influences and and, but you don't ever disguise that these influences are there.
1: Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously, the velvets were were a role model in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And that that influence kind of is slightly there, things like ripper to shreds, On the first blondie album for instance and that we used to cover femme fatale and things like that
0: well it's it's so interesting too how you know you hear about this sort of divide that it was starting to happen in new york with like patty smith and and blondie and i imagine you kind of trying out for patty smith at one time probably felt that that divide firsthand
1: yeah well patty you know it's really the uh she was the the springboard for everyone i think really her uh getting signed you know and in, in her uh first record that's so brilliant and uh, you know she along with the band television you know would play together at CBGB and they created quite a quite a stir you know like sold out shows lines around the block and they, they were the first ones to kind of to bring that uh to fruition there and uh, yeah i mean patty's great she was great you know it's um yeah i did uh had a brief uh audition with patty it was funny funny time uh at, at the blondie rehearsal studio i think uh my my partners in blondie walked in while we were doing the, the audition <laughs> i was with gary you know it's kind of funny but um Patty's great yeah but there is that weird kind of one side of the CBGB's axis was like, kind of like, uh, you know, the Heartbreakers, Blondie, the Ramones, and then on the other side, you had the television talking heads. Uh, Daddy Smith kind of uh, group it was almost like high school, you know, like cliques and stuff. It was a rock and roll high school, you know. But once again, that's the foundation
0: of so much of punk to come out of it. Like, that's what I find so fascinating about that scene is because obviously there's just a handful of you that are making up this scene, but these dynamics establish the dynamics that exist forever in punk and hardcore where you have this sort of like double helix of street rock and roll and art school kind of coming together and creating something
1: right well we had our basis in art school as well with with uh, particularly with chris and uh, jimmy our keyboard player they were both the uh, artists and um uh, i was kind of more just into the just always wanted to be a rock and roll star you know i, I was on my quest to to find the right place for me and uh, you know I've, I've said many times i was looking for the person that to front my band so to speak that had the sort of you know creativity the charisma the the power of like a bowie or a jim morrison or you know people like that and uh you know I, I thought when i found debbie you know she was kind of that person and i think that kind of what persevered uh as we continued with Blondie, you know, she became this really iconic figure. Uh, the fact that she was a woman made it a little different, you know. But I think there was there was kind of a, a yearning for the glamour of of, of of glam rock, so to speak, in the context of punk rock. I mean, the Sex Pistols were kind of like a glam rock band too, in a lot of ways, you know.
0: Yeah, there was like a lot of uh, talk of them trying to be the Bay City Rollers, or Malcolm McLaren saying that they were going to be well, the Bay yeah, City Rollers.
1: Well, yeah. I mean that i i i can get that analogy but uh, that wasn't really where they were coming from i think no. they were you know but uh knowing i mean matter of fact you know glenn matlock is now uh, playing with us in blondie on this tour that we're doing and uh, we're getting ready to do a show tomorrow night actually in new york so um yeah so uh, i've become friends with the the three of them other than john with the pistol side so but history with them going back quite a way. Uh, Glenn, and I've been friends since the 70s. Well, and
0: also one of the one of the great underrated rock records checkered past,
1: right, checkered past with Steve Jones. Yeah, that record was um, not what people expected from from uh, Steve and myself at the time, I don't think and uh, Tony sales, you know, was uh, came out of playing with Iggy on them famously played on the idiot and the lust for life albums and uh along with a guy called michael debar who's a dj now on sirius and a friend of mine and uh nigel harrison from blondie we had formed a band called checkered piss that was kind of more like a hard rock band and uh got a lot of flack from a lot of people because it wasn't what they expected and then uh kind of most recently a friend of mine was going through an old copy of that magazine kerrang yes they had the, the yeah the, then the the best albums of it was 1984 they had like the top 10 and the first one was like the Van Halen album whatever one was out then maybe the first one uh then it was purple rain and the third album was checkered Pass. so some yeah, people the, liked it yeah
0: oh no it's it's and it's one of those records that you know I'm sure at the time if I was like a young punk kid it wouldn't have been what I was hoping for but at the same time right. like hearing it now you know, divorced of that expectation that when your drums kicking on that first song, oh my God, that is a hard rock record. Right. Is it
1: Well Gone Wild? I'm not sure if that's the first song or not.
0: but That's the first song. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic record. Like once again, like I think because people have these expectations because it's, it's amazing when you're in a band and obviously you've had a much more incredible career than myself, but like how people fixate on different periods of your life, which are only really like a, a short period of time creatively, and then you're doing other stuff, but they become so idealized and, and fetishized to people at a certain point that it's hard for them to <laughs> accept that it's like, well, no, I, I do a lot of different things.
1: Yeah, well, I was kind of used to that because of the backlash of, of Heart of glass as well, you know, during mm-hmm. the days of Blondie, like I said, we thought we were experimenting. And, uh, you know, when I went on to work uh, with uh my friends in Eurythmics, Annie and Dave, on their first album called In the Garden, which we recorded in uh, uh Germany, outside of Cologne, uh, with uh, the producer, Connie Plank, who produced *Craftwork*. So when I met up with Connie, he uh, was really uh, forthcoming about how uh, much he appreciated us using the, the electronics and having a commercial hit with it, you know, and he got the connection craftwork influence in that so i was really proud to have connie say that to me he was an amazing producer produced devo and you know worked with brian eno quite a bit and it's actually a really cool documentary that connie's son did about him that you could probably find on youtube because he's not really very well known in the states you know but connie plank was a really great producer he worked with us with rhythmics on a few other things after that as well on this album called revenge i think people like um
0: you know, you, I, well, I think you're proven right on all these things that you suffered a backlash Well, too, in retrospect. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, nowadays, it does seem like I don't know if it's the whole shuffle phenomena that occurred during uh iPods first uh, coming around. But you know, it seems like there's music's all over the place. And in, in mm-hmm. a good way, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you can listen to John Coltrane next to Iggy and the Stooges next to the Rolling Stones next to Marvin Gaye, for instance, whatever. And it all kind of seems to make sense nowadays.
0: Yeah, like I think it, at a certain point when you were paying for these things, there was a lot more sort of like religious devotions to the things <laughs> right, you're yeah. you paying money for, and now that it's all kind of like pay one fee, get it I all. I guess so.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's interesting
0: to see what the music's going to come out like because it 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 will change it, right? Like that's the thing. People used to do such deep dives into certain genres mm-hmm. or certain areas, but now it's going to be a lot more far reaching.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, the music's a lot more accessible, like you said. Yeah which is a good thing about that.
0: Yeah. You also produced two of my favorite power pop bands and played in the colors as well. Oh, the, right, right, The colors and the speedies. Um, right. Right. Two super underrated groups, but were that, were they kind of happening around New York and you saw them or did they come to you because of, of Blondie obviously, or how did that start?
1: Well, a bit of both, a bit of both. Um, yeah, the colors I kind of tried to manage and uh, produce them and, uh, got them some interesting gigs. I think we opened for, they opened for the undertones, uh, for the Bay city rollers. Uh, I think the Ramones even, uh, um, yeah, they were the new kind of up and coming younger bands on the scene. And I had some time to, uh, kind Of dedicate to helping out a few of those bands, and so uh, the colors are kind of we uh, just kind of became friends, and I wound up producing an album for them as well. And then the speedies, I think once I started working with the colors, the speedies came to me uh, uh, about producing them. And uh, I had a good friend at uh, Electric Lady Studios that we were able to go into for the uh, you know, in the downtime in the middle of the night, I think, and also the colors when CBGB uh installed a 16 track uh recording board um we would go in there after the bar closed at like roughly 4 30 a.m and begin recording until <laughs> about two in the afternoon it was a really strange kind of the night shift of recording inside that bar was reeking of the night before you know but it was um hilly crystal was very supportive of of, of the colors as well you know the owner of cbgb yeah, it was just like a natural progression for me to kind of uh, keep working with younger bands, and then they—they they were mine as a drummer for a while. So I recorded a, an EP with them.
0: That's, that EP is fantastic.
1: Yeah, that's really I like, I like it a lot. I think uh, someone just did an article in the New York Times about uh, those kind of uh, second generation of uh, New York bands. Uh, I think it just came out. It was primarily primarily about the Speedies and another band, the Student Teachers.
0: Oh, yeah. For, yeah. Thurston Moore actually talked about him when he was on the show, because he was part of oh, okay. I guess, that next wave.
1: Well, uh, yeah, Thurston. Well, yeah, Sonic Youth, of course. Yeah. Well, it, it's
0: interesting, because there's also at that time you have, uh, you know, in addition to these bands, I guess you have the more of the hardcore stuff also beginning to start.
1: Right. I suppose. Genius yeah. Shit. I mean, I would, I wouldn't associate them with hardcore, but Living Color kind of came out of that second wave, you know, and Ed Stasium who, uh, produce them uh, along you know work, working on the earlier on with the talking heads and the ramones uh did a great job on that living color record that song called the personality it's amazing
0: yeah oh absolutely a fantastic band and, and i think it speaks to like cbgb's eventually you know even beginning to be a place where those are, you know meet me in the bathroom era new york bands like it was right right continually kind of like a cool space for new bands to go and play I think you there know, was
1: some kind of acrimony between the Strokes and Helio. I think I've read somewhere, someplace they uh, they
0: definitely seem to be a band that was very divisive on the scene early on. They they come up on this show and not necessarily in the best light
1: all the time. Yeah, they were. I mean, that's a whole other story, but they were a great band. They are a great band.
0: They've got some songs. You know, there's yeah, no denying yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I was going to, speaking of bands with songs, the Marbles, um, they were another band All that I think was managed by Allen early on, Betrock as well. Yeah. Um, were they a band that you guys would play with, or were they kind of like, you know, once again, a band that didn't really get far beyond a single?
1: We actually shared a rehearsal space with them early on, on West 30th Street. And I, I quite liked them because, once again, they were kind of like a power pop band. Um, yeah. Yeah. The marbles they have had some good songs i used to like that band the poppies too that morphed into the uh the boyfriends mm-hmm. later on but the poppies were very much like influenced by the cavern beatles and they were on the scene and they were really good i like them a lot poppies
0: and you brought up jimmy earlier and he did he play with the fast or he had some connection to the fast right
1: well jimmy Desjard, keyboard player in Blondie, we originally met him through the the, the fast, you know, and um, they all grew up together in a uh, uh, area of Brooklyn. And um, Jimmy's sister was a friend of uh, ours as well. So it was all kind of, uh, you know, there was only that handful of people that were, were hanging around Max's and, and CBGB at the beginning, most of whom were musicians and the fast were a, a band that actually would play at club 82 as well and uh we used to cover one of their songs with blondie called comic books but we jimmy came to us via the members of the fast recommending him yeah but he never he played in supposedly he played in that band milk and cookies for a minute
0: yeah i I think i read in the book that he got kicked out just before they went to england to do that first record
1: (laughs) yeah something like that i'm not really sure that's all kind of Kind of cloudy for me i don't know but uh we were lucky to get jimmy at the time you know we were looking for a piano player and uh you know he didn't have a piano but he had to have a farfisa organ which obviously fit into our whole kind of uh bubblegum rock kind of punk rock aesthetic you know it kind of immediately kind of brought a sound of the 60s let's say to the to the band in a good way you know incorporating the farfisa organ
0: it's interesting to think of how different it would have been if you had found a piano player instead. Like how that would have changed, because obviously right. the Profesa organ in Blondie is a massive influence in your right, way early
1: on. Right, the first album, yeah, and, and yeah, in general, right. You're right.
0: And it's amazing to think how the, the that change would have affected all rock afterwards in a way,
1: especially right. punk. Yeah, if you think about it, I mean, it harkens back to you know the question mark and hysterians type of sound. Ninety six tears or uh, you know uh the little red riding hood uh you know sam the sham yeah people like that
0: i just took my kids to an amusement park yesterday and they played little red riding hood as we were walking in and (laughs) it's just it's such a a, uh an over-the-top song to hear in a children's kind of environment (laughs)
1: really yeah it's kind of uh yeah (laughs) yeah once you think about it yeah it's kind of uh yeah i see what you mean
0: uh when you went to that your, your trip to England and uh I, you, you went to visit a girlfriend I believe and, yeah my also, girlfriend
1: was going to uh Polytechnic in uh East London yeah and so you but you were there and you
0: also checked out like Dr Feelgood I read and, and became a big fan of Dr Feelgood
1: yeah yeah I, I saw the feel goods a bunch of times while I was there they were kind of like really riding the wave of their kind of biggest success at the time. And uh, I was in there's an album called Stupidity, a live album that I was uh, present for the recording of and I I did see them uh, play a few other shows along the way. And uh, also, I sort of uh, became friends with uh, Eddie and the Hot Rods. And uh, there was a band Cursella Flyers that uh, the the writer Will Birch was in and uh, who went on to play drums in the records later on as well, Will did. And uh, yeah, that whole kind of uh beginnings of I I didn't see the pistols I mean I I think I probably was there when they were playing so the stranglers um yeah but uh, the whole kind of um, minimalist uh approach of doctor feelgood was something i was very appreciative of and i also kind of saw the comp- the comparison to a band like johnny thunders and the heartbreakers for instance you know with the, rooted in that sort of RB. And the the good style, you know, with Wilco with the black suit and the black red and black guitar, and 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 Lee Brillo in the white skinny suit, and <clears throat> it was just like uh, very appealing to me. And their energy was amazing. And you know, everyone acknowledges them as being the really true precursors of of punk rock. You know, like the, the, the kind of the bridge from pub rock, so called pub rock. Because I think the Feelgoods were very more much more aggressive than a lot of the punk the pub rock bands at the time that were doing uh, you know covers of American rock and roll. But uh, then you had uh, you know kind of the presence of kind of the beginnings of like Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and things like that going on at the same time over there.
0: With Brinsley Schwartz, right? And In- yeah, with
1: Brinsley Schwartz. Yeah, but um, yeah, the Feelgoods uh, very influential. Just their whole presence and uh went on to see them in america a few times famously they played at the bottom line which is no longer there it's an nyu dorm now with uh, was the the feel goods with the ramones opening so it was like the greatest combination you know ever you know it was really amazing and i think i saw the feel goods play up like in hofstra university or something like that we tried to talk to the guitarist wilco johnson but he was, seemed very moody and what didn't want to even be there at the time so yeah, there's a great documentary about the feel-goods. You've probably seen it, Oil City Confidential. Absolutely, fantastic. It kind of spells it all out. Yeah, it's amazing. Julian Temple, great job on on directing that. It's really, I think I'm in it for like a second too as well, I think, because as you referenced, uh, it's become kind of folklore how I brought that album back to the States. And uh, we had a party, a welcome home party for me that, that we had in the Blondie Loft, and that record stayed on the turntable all night, just being played over and over everybody really liked it well I love that
0: kind of cultural uh football that's being tossed back and forth between English rock and roll and American rock and roll where you know know, and it it just like that influence that you kind of have on each each other's scenes um it's just so fascinating to look at and I guess it goes right up until like bands like The Strokes where you have you know them getting much more popular in the UK before they get popular in North America Right.
1: Well, that was the case with Blondie as well. Our early success was in Europe, uh, and in Australia. But yeah, and yeah, we always kind of thought back to Jimi Hendrix, how he went out to England mm-hmm. and became popular. So um, yeah, the strokes are another band that definitely had the success in the UK, uh, much sooner and uh, much bigger than in the US at the beginning for sure.
0: Well, you know, speaking of UK, there's that famously terrible enemy review that Charles Murray did of blonde Oh right right
1: Blondie will never make it and all that kind of (laughs) like one of those yeah I know Charlie Murray he's very opinionated but he's written some good stuff along the way but he was wrong about that so oh it's it's
0: funny it's amazing when you go back and read it now in in a lot of ways it's a terrible in a lot of ways when you read it now but also just how uh, completely the inverse it got it with the history but had that come out by the time you had gone to England for this trip
1: Oh, no, no, that was a little later. Okay. The band was going, but, uh, you know, I was telling people about the band when I was there, but uh, it was very early on, uh, you know, and that that was the whole thing when I began to see bands like Eddie and the Hot Rods and Dr. Feelgood, I could make the comparison to what was going on in New York because it was kind of pretty much completely underground at that time. You know, it wasn't really well known with CBGB and all that. I remember... I kind of got a ride back from a gig with the members of the Hot Rods. I remember telling them about the New York scene and about Blondie and bands like that, television, things like that. So it was very early on. It was before the media kind of picked up on any of it. And uh, I mean, we were pretty rough. You know, that was the whole deal. We always kind of say the same thing about CBGB, how it was kind of a workshop for us. You know, you're able to make your mistakes in public and, uh, you know, for better or worse, at the time, much of it was not uh, recorded. You know, it was just kind of happened there in thin air, and then it was gone. You know, so um, Bob Gruen was probably the only one who had the uh, the, the 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 you know, looking the black at and the white head, camera. you camera. Know, yeah, and yeah. had yeah, well, had the video camera. Yeah, and and, and had enough um, whatever word I'm searching for to realize this is probably something that's gonna kind of continue. And it'd be great to document that he was early, early on, uh, you know, pro, uh, you know, documenting everything that was going on. I mean, that film that he made about the New York Dolls is amazing from all the footage that he had on them. But uh, it was all word of mouth, you know, and so uh, we we could we could screw up. I mean, there's that some of that footage of the Ramones arguing with one another on stage at CBGB and things like that. So, um, you know, it was a really like a workshop. So it was like an anything goes atmosphere, you know, so that was a good thing yeah maybe he saw us on a probably most nights were not that good with blondie early on there was always something screwing up so but, but i think that persevered you know
0: well and i think that's that's what's so punk about it is because it is right. it's real and that like you know the show might, might not be great but it's going to be a real show and obviously blondie now is like I, I saw you with garbage a couple years ago when you came through toronto and it was you know oh, okay. it's, it's still unbelievable like the show is incredible but like there's still that honesty on stage where it's not like the ramones where everyone's kind of got a costume on and i guess you know elvis ramone you would know this firsthand but you know with blondie it's just it's the real people up there and it, it's very authentic
1: well that's nice of you to say that yeah my time with the ramones was brief and uh i'd been asked to join many times i mean i was with tommy in the uk when they were on their tour with the talking heads when we were touring with uh, television on our first UK tour and Tommy at that time had told me he was planning on leaving the band, he just couldn't take everything the the politics, the uh, pressures I and mean, he really wanted to just become what he had set out to become a producer. And, uh, you know, I was asked to join back then. And so it was always, you know, Blondie was always going on. Finally, when I was asked to join, When I accepted, I should say, it was a very strange time. Uh, Johnny refused. He wouldn't rehearse. I always make a comparison. Like picking up a guitar for him was like picking up Jackhammer. I mean, he was brilliant, but I don't think he wanted to to know about rehearsing and things like that. He just kind of wanted an immediate transition from, at the time, Richie Ramone into me, Elvis Ramone. I came up with the name. I knew they were the big Elvis fans. I didn't want to be Clemmy Ramone. So I said, hey, how about Elvis Ramone? And at the time I didn't have my haircut like this. I had my, I had been playing with rhythmics. I kind of had more like a a DA. So I go, how about Elvis Ramon, you know? So it's, it's amazing that that part of my uh, history, although brief always comes up. And I mean, the Ramones were to me, the most influential band uh, after the Beatles, you know, they're like the Beatles of, of my generation, of our generation, you know, so many, so influential. in a particular sound you know and style but i mean i went to high school wearing a motorcycle jacket you know i used to get thrown out for not wearing a tie and wearing a black leather jacket so i immediately related to the way they looked which is really they were just dressed the way a lot of kids dressed at the time you know
0: yeah no I, i think that's the thing about them that and that's why people are always so fascinated by them is because they're it's a band that you know like once again like you were saying earlier everyone's like oh it was so simple what they were doing everything's so simple it's yeah. like no there's a lot yeah. of rules and there's a lot yeah. of thought that went into a
1: lot of great songwriting a lot of great lyrics
0: absolutely and, um, and once again a band that's timeless like you can put on those records and they still sound oh yeah fresh
1: yeah it's interesting that you know that handful of bands that the music is uh, the legacy and kind of it's endorsed it's amazing yeah
0: and and it's also like when a band can live the gimmick that long i i had dinner with johnny in high school and oh wow meeting him as like just as a kid and having this like very long dinner where he's telling me like yeah i never practiced he's like i'm never going to pick up a guitar right
1: right yeah i I
0: have no reason to ever do that and just i mean
1: that's that's interesting i suppose it's very punk you know it was a means to an end for him but uh that's really not where i was coming from as a musician you know i I mean i did want to be successful but i i think first and foremost i'm a I enjoy playing music, you know. I mean, I, I I do all these offshoot bands, you know, for fun and just for the music, and, you know, it, it's just uh, what I do. It's always what I've done. I, I guess Johnny, he just kind of picked up the guitar and made it, uh, you know, the his uh, entree into uh, the world he wanted to be in without uh, having to actually work, you know. So I know, although it was hard work, obviously, with the Ramones. But uh, I think Dee kind of, for the most part, got kind of upset with the – you know when he branched out he tried to be a rap artist which was kind of a joke but uh yeah he didn't really want to be stuck in that um uh, that sort of format forever i think and also when i was in the band joey and i would talk about expanding things a little bit you know but it was so weird sitting in the band because you know famously the two of them didn't speak to one another any longer so johnny would be in the front with the tour manager monty melnick and then i would sit in the next row and then joey was behind me and then dd Dee Dee would be in the back and I would just kind of really talk to Joey most of the time. We were friends, you know. Yeah. Good guy. Yeah. Rest in peace. Absolutely. And then the politics, you know, <laughs> between Johnny and Joey, it's just crazy.
0: Yeah, I think that once again sets up a lot of the dichotomy that exists in punk too, with people right, right. on both extremes um yeah existing in the same music. But when CJ was on um the show, he talked about how speed, the speed of the band really affected uh joey and how he never wanted to play this fast but with johnny right. it
1: was always fast it had to be it was fast. like he wanted to get off stage as quickly as possible yeah, <laughs> and, yeah i mean uh, i did a uh, mike watt and i did the show the 40th anniversary of the first album and uh <clears throat> when uh it was decided that he and i were going to be the bass player and the drummer i had never really met mike before although i you know know about the minute men and uh, all that i uh, got in touch with him and said hey you know you want to do this he goes yeah let's rehearse so like we spent a week just he and i playing first just playing along to the first album and then after we had everything committed to memory just going into mike's studio in pedro and just and just playing uh, the album over and over you know the i mean the music of the album over and over, the songs from the album over and over and then by the time we got to new york there were people that had that other idea oh yeah this is easy i'm just going to play ramon's song and we're like no wait a minute guys you know we're doing this this way and because uh, we have really spent quite a bit of time and you know and i got craig leon came on to play uh play farfisa on let's dance which he did on the first album but uh it, it kind of for me it kind of uh verified or you know legitimize what I was thinking all along if I only had a chance to rehearse with the Ramones it would have been great <laughs> yeah. but it was complete tri- trial by fire you know? but, but yeah. it was great that Mark came back Mark and I are friends I just saw Mark in Ibiza we did um a DJ gig together in, in Ibiza believe it or not uh but I was playing like Motown and and garage rock and stuff and, and Mark was playing like like YMCA and like blowing whistles and stuff and, <laughs> Dressed as uh, dressed in his black leather jacket, it was kind of incongruous in that regard. But uh, we had a good time being there. It's an interesting place to be.
0: Well, different styles, I guess, to this day. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. <laughs> Mark is great. I saw his band Dust back when when he had had that sort of heavy metal band Dust, and of course, Mark played with uh, with Wayne County back at Club 82. He's somebody that's that I've known for a very long time
0: wow that's that yeah like it, and i guess the the dust is another band that i think has gotten um a lot more love these days from record collectors and stuff like that right, on their probably. own completely independent from right
1: Momoso. right
0: uh well you talked about it earlier and i gotta ask you about it what was it like playing with iggy for those years and and you know finally getting to play with this band that kind of inspired you or the person who from this band that kind of inspired you to enter this journey
1: well the the tour I did with Iggy was uh, was a six week tour that uh, came about. Uh, I was re- working with with Jimmy Destri on his uh, solo record that he made during the Blondie break, and 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 one of the guitarists on that record was Carlos Alomar from from David Bowie's band, right? So um, it was an album called Rock and Roll Party that I guess Iggy had been promoting, and uh, for whatever reason they needed a drummer, and he also asked Carlos to do it. And then I remember Carlos called me up and said, are you know are you going to do this? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. So um, we went on tour and we played some amazing gigs. One well, when we played in uh, in San Francisco, Allen Ginsberg turned up and we were like hanging out with him and he's like chanting before we go on and uh, things like that. And uh, famously, we opened two nights for the Rolling Stones uh, in uh, on home, yeah, iggy's home ground pontiac Silverdome, like seventy thousand people indoors it was iggy santana and the, and the stones with no sound check for iggy and uh before the days of metal detectors so we got pelted with all kinds of stuff and iggy was just on the edge of the stage like taking it all in and uh, you know it was great it was, that tour was really good because it was a, a selection across the board everything from the first stooges album into the idiot album into the lust for life album into the Rock and Roll Party album that he was promoting, um, it was probably the most fun. I mean, I've gone on The, the mandate from Iggy was play, play as loud and as fast as possible. You know, that's what he <laughs> that's would awesome. tell us to do. So it was really great. It was great. You know, and then of course our first national tour with Blondie was supporting Iggy with David Bowie on keyboards um, when they they had made the Idiot record and they were we got invited to be the opening act. That was amazing. That's where our connection with David began and with Iggy, you know. But um, no, it was really inspiring and to play, play with with Iggy, very big time. And uh, luckily that is captured on this uh, video that's company, Target. They recorded mm-hmm. one of our shows in San Francisco and people always talk about that when I when I uh, meet them, you know, you know, people that are more interested into Iggy and the punk rock thing than the whole sort of blondie side of things, so that was great it was really a great experience working with him
0: it's it's funny because like uh I I got, I opened for him uh I opened for the Stooges when the day after they had all their gear stolen in Montreal oh, and all okay. their all their oh, shit wow. went off and they were this was when Mike
1: was playing bass right when
0: Mike was playing okay. bass exactly oh, yeah. and they came in the next night and we expected them to just be you know licking wounds kind of thing but they came out And it was unbelievable. Like one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life. And there was someone there, like a bunch of people there from Detroit that saw him back in the day. And they were like, they were unhinged and it's almost like Iggy thrives from adversity. Like those there's legendary bad Stooges shows that are bootlegs where you hear him. And he, it's almost like he's relishing in the fact that he's got that much effect on a crowd in the negative way too. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I remember on that, um, on that video, he says something like, well, if, if he's like miming strumming a guitar and he's like if you if you can if you can pretend pretend this is a guitar i can pretend you're an audience you know things, <laughs> things like that you know or something
0: yeah. yeah well i mean, think- it's
1: really great with the one-liners when he had that song "Winter of my discontent which is not on the video where we were doing and you said this is a song i co-wrote with bill shakespeare you know things like that yeah you know, that's a great song yeah keith
0: morris when he saw uh the stooges on their last kind of run the first time around uh he said that Iggy got dumped a thing of water on himself and then grabbed the microphone and zapped himself unconscious <laughs> and then that yeah, that's broke.
1: pretty outrageous yeah
0: and yeah just you know for someone to be able to do that and still do it on that level all these years later it's like the uh the gods amongst men type thing
1: yeah we're actually talking about maybe next year trying to do some shows blondie and Niggy together again oh that would be amazing yeah i think it would be good there there's there's a bunch of bunch of different artists that are still around that we we think would be great to kind of hook up with the way similar we did to with johnny room joey uh johnny mar mm-hmm. just uh, was our special guest in the uk on this tour we just did and then when we toured with garbage and, we like to, and then I'll, the tour that we're doing now—you know, the Damned—is our support act. This tour that's just about to happen with Blondie—that's so, not coming uh,
0: here. I wish that was coming here. Right, oh it's kind of
1: yeah, it's kind of just the East Coast, and so we're playing Nashville and uh, Chicago, Detroit.
0: Yeah,
1: that would be amazing. The closest, yeah,
0: but if you do if you do do that tour with Iggy, you got to do Repo Man together.
1: Well, yeah, that was good. That was good with Steve, and yeah, that was a good one
0: uh this has been unbelievable and anytime clem you want to come back on the show and and talk about punk or josh Cantor or (laughs) or anything know that you're
1: always welcome okay damian thank you very much and uh it was great talking to you and uh yeah i guess we're supposed to be plugging this uh against the odds box set that's coming out uh actually friday uh this it's really for blondie super fans and we also coincidentally just recorded a new album so we're looking back and looking forward at the same time so there'll be a new blondie album next year so we'll give it another 18 months well been come saying back. It since the 70s so <laughs> yeah, the
0: last the Probably. last record was unbelievable i think yeah. like you'd pollinator yeah you, yeah i think i think as a band it's it's great to see continuing to put out classic
1: albums yeah yeah that was kind of our mandate when we got back together in the late 90s was we had to start making new music again so thanks a lot for your time. Appreciate it. And I, I've, I've caught your podcast many times. It's a great show. Keep up the good work. Oh, my gosh.
0: Well, now you're leaving me blushing. Can you believe it? Clem Burke listens to this podcast. How wild is that? Thank you, Clem, for coming on the show. And, and hopefully Clem will be back for a part two at some point in the future because there's a lot more stories to get to with that guy. Holy jeez. Talk about a legend. Once again, you can grab that Blondie box set now. It is it is worth the time and you will dive into this thing and probably get lost in this thing. It looks as I said off the top, it looks pretty, pretty comprehensive in 74 to 82. Not that Blondie ever got bad, but like that is my oh, I love that period of Blondie. Anyway, that is it. Coming up on the next episode of the show, you heard him talk about him on this episode. Monty Melnick will be on the show uh, in a, next week. Monty is, of course, the legendary uh, tour manager of the Ramones, uh, also the author of On the Road with the Ramones, an incredible book. If you've never seen this thing, you got to pick it up. It's been reissued again with more stories in it, but holy Jesus. <laughs> There are some wild stories in that thing. And uh yeah, Monty's on the show and we we talk we talk punk. What else are we gonna talk about? And we talk about like proto-punk and some other stuff too, because you know, it's all it's all in it's all under the umbrella. Uh, but that is it. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember as always, black lives matter, the lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different Races and different faiths because these these aren't political issues these are basic basic human rights people deserve to be able to fr- live freely from without hate or, or violence or discrimination so get involved in organizations that are affecting positive change in these areas and I also add to this and I'm not just this is happening in Canada it's happening all over the world but I add to this we need to help protect people's rights to choose what they want to do with the reproductive systems because there are people coming for these things. There's people coming for these rights, and I, not just in America. It's happening in Canada. I'm sure it's happening in other places in the world. I'm sure there's there, – well, I know there's plenty of places in the world where people don't have the right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive system. So once again, get involved in organizations. Lend your time. Lend your, your – if you've got money to spare, I'm sure there's funding for these things that that need to happen, and you know, just just get involved. Um, it'll make you feel a little bit better. Speaking of feeling a little better, a little bit better. Try meditating. I didn't believe in it. And now, now I try it. And it, it, it kind of works for me a little bit. So maybe it will work for you. You know, what's the worst that can happen? You just don't like it. You don't do it again. Boom. Maybe try it a couple times. Because it took a while for me to kind of connect to it too. Uh, make your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Start a podcast. Whatever you want to do. Just, just exercise some creative outlet. <laughs> I don't know if being a, doing a podcast is very creative, but maybe yours will be more creative than mine. You know, I don't know if mine's necessarily my creative outlet, but uh, it's it's fun. I love doing it. I learn every single time and i have gotten to meet a lot of people on this last tour that also enjoy it. So thank you to everyone who's come up and talked to me about it. I really appreciate that. And uh, oh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. It's just literally dead weight at that point. So Donate them and it can give someone a a, a new life, a new a legitimately a, a new life, a chance to live. I've seen it happen firsthand. So please sign those organ donor cards. And that is it. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. And I'll be home next week. And uh, yeah, bye.